I'm Diane Hullett, and welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Today, I've got a really interesting guest. I'm here today with Rob Colbert, and Rob is a licensed professional counselor and a psychotherapist, and I've connected with him through a friend and asked if he would talk to us today about psychedelics at the end of life and psychedelics in general, because I think there's a resurgence in interest in their powerful use as a tool. So welcome, Rob. Hi, thanks. So just kind of give us a little background. How did you come to be doing what you're doing? Well, it's, yeah, it's always a fun question to answer. Um, you know, uh, at the age of 19, I started exploring with drugs. Um, that included a full range, pretty much uh, MDMA, uh, LSD, psilocybin, um, even DMT and some research chemicals. But um, for me as a young person, that exploration kind of exposed to me how lacking our drug education was. Um, the first time I did MDMA, I was you know hit with this um, heart opening experience where I wanted to connect with others. And I, I told my friend, I was like, hey, why don't they use this for couples therapy? And he just kind of laughed at me and said, well, they did before it was made illegal in 1985. And so the light bulb went off and I was like, well, wow, this is crazy. Uh, we really need to do more research on this, if this could be beneficial for people. And so I kind of set off a long trajectory of both my own you know, personal self-exploration, but then also kind of exploring ways that we, to help advocate for that. And so, um, yeah, uh, later in life, it led towards seeking a degree in transpersonal counseling psychology at Naropa University. And I appreciated transpersonal um, because in, in the grand scheme of things, it's kind of a turn in humanistic psychology from, um, you know, just the humanistic pieces and, and raising to self-actualization to also addressing spirituality or some of these bigger um, ineffable concepts in life. And so a lot of that had related to my use with substances and just saying like, oh, there were some epiphanies that came out of these trips or these experiences that really did impact me and how I pursued my own life goals, my purpose, my relationships. And I really did consider it a healthy turn, right? Like, of course, these drugs um, could cause trouble, but I was finding that in a lot of ways, it deepened my connection with other people, deepened my connection with the planet. Um, and I just wanted to really advocate for that further. And so, um, yeah, in a nutshell, it's kind of how I ended up uh, an advocate and as a psychedelic therapist today. So interesting. And, and when we were talking at the beginning, you said that you, you know, went to Naropa for this transpersonal psychology, and then you also went on and got a PhD in anthropology and like how those must influence each other in your work. It's got to be really um, a powerful sort of you, you got powerful tools from both of those to come to where you are. Yeah, I uh, like I said, I, I, I consider, you know, the um, degree at Naropa, um, it was described once by a friend said that it was like going to school to be a surgeon, but using your own arm to learn how to operate, um, meaning that in the transpersonal counseling, you know, first we had to do our own therapy. And so um, just like I wouldn't trust a lifeguard who'd never been in the deep end of the pool. It was my own chance to kind of jump into my own deep end and do my personal work there. Um, actually, in 2010, I also did some work with an underground therapist doing um, some psychedelic assisted therapies. And part of it was just to kind of explore that um, in, uh, you know, outside of just doing the drugs and enjoying, you know, having fun with my friends, but wanted to see how that applied to doing therapy in this deeper work. 
Um, and it was, it was really a deep dive. And uh, the wild parts about it was in that uh, underground experience, I even uncovered traumas that it existed that were really early in my childhood, maybe two weeks old experiencing traumas. And so uh, it was wild to have that open up, but then also to have a process oriented with that, that then I was grappling with it and seeing the consequences and then how I may make meaningful change in my life. So yeah, after that and graduating, going off for my PhD in anthropology and social change, it became kind of the outward exploration of how to take the, the personal change and turn it into social change. And um, so, yeah, I really appreciated it. It's a radical department um, that was, yeah, really geared on post-capitalist, post-colonial studies, affirming feminism in the act, uh, activism that we do. And so I do, I think it really transformed um, yeah, my, my own advocacy and how I, I act in the world these days. Absolutely. And kind of shaped your knowing. What, well, you know, there's a lot of buzz about psychedelics kind of in the news these days and how there are these powerful studies coming out about it, their use for trauma and for alcoholism, those kind of places. But before jumping to kind of the current field, can you tell us more about the 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 history like my understanding is that these drugs were being studied sort of in the 40s 50s with promising results so do you, give us a little history as a anthropologist <laughs> yeah absolutely well you know just to take it all, all the way back um humans and their curiosity with using substances from their environment to change their mood and behavior goes back thousands of years, of course, right? We've got, um, you know, documentation out of antiquity and, you know, uh, the Eleusian mysteries. And um, so it's, uh, as an anthropologist, I, I try and steer away from things that I like called human nature. I think that uh, humanity is, has got a lot of diversity. And so anything we would say is nature and, and, and kind of bound by it, except for when I talk about this piece with using substances from our environment to change us. And I just think that that really is a natural place that we've leaned into, right? And so um, whether or not it was the like stoned ape theories of evolution or things like that. But um, so yeah, of course, um, Western science um, started really to try and document some of these things. Um, in some ways, the exploration of these changes to consciousness were used to explore um, psychosis, right? And so the, the symptoms that were actually um, tormenting humans um, and scientists wanting a, a better way to practice with uh, those patients and these kind of states. And so the altered states work um, was explored from kind of that angle. Um, what was interesting is even early on, uh, it was found that um, even though these substances might mimic psychosis, the, the recovery from this was actually um, really more impactful in people's lives. And so um, researchers like Stanislav Grof, who actually in the Czech Republic um, was researching high-dose LSD early on, um, was finding that people would have these very transpersonal experiences, uh, exploring things like birth trauma, like um, I described with myself. But what was interesting is that um, when he would do these high-dose sessions, folks would go back to this uh, core trauma that had taken place and through processing that then in, in, in later sessions would never return to it. So there was like, uh, there was this transformation that took place in people's lives that 
yeah, seemed pretty, pretty well um, solidified and fixed afterward. And so um, that's really encouraging because like, you know, even with some of the drugs and, and substances that we see uh, prescribed today, um, people may take these medications for a long time, but then when they stop, uh, a whole wave of other symptoms come on sometimes from the withdrawal, but then also, you know, it's not like it cured their depression or cured their anxiety. So they're kind of back to square one. Whereas in with working with psychedelic assisted therapies, um, the ketamine assisted therapy that I, I work with, with folks, we see really meaningful, purposeful changes in people's lives. And the good news is it's not from them taking ketamine every day. It's from having a few meaningful experiences and finding you know, this purposeful transitions in their life. And say, say for like, if someone's listening and they, they've not, not heard of any of these things, like, can you say like, what's the difference between ketamine versus psilocybin versus uh, MDMA or LSD? I don't know. I, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. they're all different chemicals, but particularly mm-hmm. the ketamine and the psilocybin, how do those differentiate in legality and experience in studies, whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, well, so psilocybin is uh, the active ingredient um, in psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms. Um, so that uh, has been around in the uh, human experience for thousands of years. Uh, it was made popular in the late 40s, early 50s by ethnobotanists, white medical trained researchers that went out and started researching these. And so the tragedy is, is they were, they were colonized, right? So they went down to Mexico, found these practices. Um, Mira Sabina um, was a practitioner who would expose these. Um, and regretfully, because they were hijacked by Western culture, she was actually, you know, ousted from her community. And they were like, hey, why did you do this? Um, so that was uh, kind of a resurgence of some of the psychedelic uh, research with psilocybin. It was then um, isolated um and then studied on its own. And so that also removes it from the context of using the mushroom and then just using the psilocybin substance. And so uh, for me, um, one of the benefits of magic mushrooms is that it is um, a fungus that comes from the earth and it's got a full range of other useful alkaloids uh, within the substance that also contribute to the experience that people have with it. And so in isolating it down to just psilocybin and using it, um, I don't know, it may or may not be as beneficial as like using a whole mushroom. And so, right. right. Um, well, it's like eating a fresh tomato from the garden versus like a, you know, canned process to tablespoon of tomato. Like they're, they're, they just are different, two different things. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, like uh, eating a jalapeno versus taking just the capsaicin, which is the hot element. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, that uh, psilocybin related to, or, you know, uh, compared then to ketamine. So ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. It was um, first synthesized in 1962. Uh, It was exploring um, analogs actually to PCP. Um, And so uh, using it as an anesthetic was um, beneficial because it doesn't lower your heart rate. It doesn't lower your breathing rate. And so uh, doctors and surgeons um, in combat specifically were able to use this uh, and not have to have someone monitoring vitals why they may do a procedure like an amputation or something like that. So as an anesthetic, it was a great step forward. Um, Also, at that time, um, the effects of it, the subjective effects that people would experience were kind of, they were reported to be pretty intense. And so it actually led to them um, 
seeking further uh, analogs of the anesthesia, ones that didn't create that same kind of experience. But um, as early as the 70s and 80s, um, different medical doctors and, and psychiatrists were exploring this use um, specifically for those altered subjective effects, right? And so the trippiness, so to say, were explored um, first uh, reported like antidepressant effects, people encountering ketamine and just feeling better for the coming weeks, uh, a few days, even up to a couple of weeks or months. And so, um, yeah, uh, that was a began the exploration of using like the sub anesthetic doses. And so that's what we lean into these days uh, with ketamine assisted therapy is actually using doses to where people, um, especially in my office, uh, they're not fully anesthetized. People are able to talk most of the time. They um, are able to explore their experience. And so within that, we kind of tap into it and then use it for processing existential material, um, relationships, identities, really any range of things that could come up during those sessions. So, so, so when you work with someone, there's a little bit of a, um, I'm sure a conversation before, like a setting of intention, kind of a plan for when and how to do that. And then some follow-up is it. And so what kind of changes do you see people inhabit? Well, you know, um, and kind of going to the root of, you know, psychedelic, the word psyche um, is often translated to mind, but that's pretty limiting. It's actually uh, in the Greek or Latin translations could mean soul or spirit. And so it's soul or spirit manifesting is psychedelic. And so within that, it could be any number of things that show up. I've had people who experienced past life experiences, um, deaths from previous lives and um, the encounter of those difficult experiences and then having them impact us in our lives today here in the 2000s. And so um, ranges from that to people, like I said, just exploring um, things that show up in their day-to-day -day life today. So that's part of why doing preparation I think is so important. And so I definitely meet with people before we do ketamine assisted therapy to kind of get a lay of the land. And I want to know about people's um, religious beliefs or spirituality, thoughts around that, um, whether they incorporate mystical type experiences or not, or alternative ways of healing, like Reiki or acupuncture, things like that. And so just wanting to kind of get a good idea of how people meet mm -hmm. the psyche for themselves so that then we can kind of know the landscape that we might traverse. And so within that, I've used ketamine assisted therapy for um, atheists and agnostics all the way up to folks really in devout in their faith, whether it was Islam or um, yeah, any number of uh, sects of Christianity. And so uh, it really is individualized at that piece. Uh, I don't claim to be the expert in like trying to purport that one sense of spirituality is the best. It's really just meeting people where they're at. And so, um, yeah, the preparation side is, is, is really purposeful in that. Uh, that way we're kind of prepared for what shows up. And then, you know, just to be honest, every time someone takes a drug or medicine, it's an experiment. And so we don't know what might show up. Um, for instance, uh, one of the folks that reported the past lives piece, that was not in their wheelhouse. They, you know, were, were not expecting that. Um, however, it didn't change um, their, their ability to work with that encounter and make meaningful, you know, um, uh, yeah, changes in their life afterward. And so that's also that piece of having integration work is, is just as important because then 
Um, like uh, one uh, person that I'm working with right now is a uh, devout Jehovah's Witness. And so that opening up their connection to their community and their connection to the divine uh, really uh, has transformed how they work with the ketamine assisted therapy piece. And so, um, yeah, I really find it to be a dynamic tool uh, to, to work with people. And the great news is, is um, I've had people have really meaningful sessions. And so it was just one exposure to ketamine. And we ended up doing therapy for over a year before we did ketamine again. And that created a lot of transformation in their life. So it wasn't like we had to just keep giving them more and more ketamine or having them do it daily. Uh, that was actually not the meaningful piece. The ketamine was just kind of like, eh, not as interesting as the existential stuff that opened up afterward. That's, I just love hearing about that, Rob. That's so interesting to me. This, what you said about kind of, um, it's a dynamic tool to create meaningful change. And and that seems like the real power sort of in terms of these kind of um, tools, medicines at the end of life, right? With people who experience an enormous amount of maybe existential angst. I know there are some people with tremendous fear. And my understanding is that these kinds of um, experiences can really alter someone's experience with how they are heading towards the end of their life. I don't know if you have any specific experiences with people who are facing a terminal illness or diagnosis, but I think it's such a powerful place. It is. It is. And what I appreciate about it is, you know, of course, you know, living life, um, as a, as a child, we're kind of like this perfect little being, and then we're exposed to humanity and all any number of terrible things can happen. Any number of wonderful things can happen as well. But then, yeah, as we grow up and grow older, sometimes that veil can become uh, more dense and thick. And so then when we get to the end of life, um, it can be very, very much provoke a lot of anxiety. People going, oh, what do I do? And where am I at? And what does this all mean? And psychedelics and their ability to kind of um, thin that veil out or even lift it and remove it altogether to remind them of that sense of spirituality that they had as a youngster or some of these meaningful experiences that they've had just kind of bring that into the forefront and, and, and re-exposes them to it. And so I think that it's that rediscovery or, you know, new discovery that, that makes it meaningful and purposeful. And, you know, from my perspective, life is terminal no one gets out alive. And so within that, that's also how I feel that these are, are useful, even when we don't have a terminal diagnosis. And so um, I'm a big advocate that uh, for, for legalizing these substances, right, the, the foundations of the Controlled Substances Act, we're not about protecting people. It was actually about controlling groups of people. And the uh, substances that were targeted were because of the groups of people that were using those, right? And so, um, you know, the good example of this is, you know, Tylenol is sold over the counter. I could go to 7-Eleven and buy enough right now to kill myself and a couple of other people. So it's not about controlling the substance. It was about controlling the groups of people, right? So psilocybin was identified as being used uh, in Mexico and in indig indigenous traditions. And so, of course, was demonized and told to be controlled because of that, those groups of people and the racist context, which existed at that time in the 60s and 70s when this was being formulated. And so the other one that I like to bring up is Dramamine. Dramamine also sold over the counter. Kids can go buy it. 
you can also go buy enough to have amazingly psychedelic experiences. And it's actually one of the weirdest, strangest trips I ever did as a young person. And so it's not about protecting people, right? The Controlled Substances Act was about controlling groups of people. So in our advocacy, it's really about um, just confronting that and saying like, no, actually, if it was about protecting people, how can we store bleach under our sink, right? That's extremely harmful. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. It's also, I also think it's really interesting what you said just at the very beginning, going back to that humans have have altered their consciousness through substances our entire, as far as we know, the entire human existence. And go back to the stoned ape theory. Like if someone's listening and they haven't heard of that, can you just expound on that for a minute? Uh, I think it was Graham Hancock uh, that uh, wrote about some of this and purported it. Um, Terrence McKenna, maybe um, I forget. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, literature kind of like floods in. But basically, uh, is this idea that um, mammals and their ability to seek out substances that transform their thinking uh, was paramount in discovering new things like using fire or making tools. And so in some ways it could have been haphazard exposure, just kind of like hanging out in the forest and eating a mushroom and then having major epiphanies. Um, but those epiphanies leading to meaningful transformations in how people communicate with each other. Um, I'm not, I, I can't recall the book or its title right now, but it actually explores the usefulness of alcohol and how alcohol's ability to depress things like, um, uh, inhibitions. anger, yeah, inhibitions, right? <laughs> inhibitions, but actually yeah. made it possible for people to come together and not just fight. They would come together, depress some of those, and then have meaningful conversations. And so it's just interesting to see how that mood alteration could have been used in purposeful ways to actually create, um, yeah, communities coming together and forming society in these larger like contexts. So. Right. Like fermented beverages, essentially. Right. I feel like that might have been there's a book called The Immortality Key. And I can't remember the author of that, but it kind of explores this use of medicines through history to create um, altered consciousness and altered relationships. Right. That sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. So what you know, let's see, what do I want to ask? I kind of want to be like, so what's the downside? Like I've, I've heard it said, like one of the challenges with these substances becoming legal is that then I'm going to call them big pharmaceutical companies are going to kind of sweep in and patent this stuff, which takes it out of the hands of the indigenous cultures and the local growers and that kind of thing. What, what can you say about that? Well, yeah, uh, you know, recently Compass Pathways um, released their information about Compass 360, which is um, a synthetic extraction of psilocybin, um, or it's a synthetic form, it's not an extraction. But so, um, yeah, and they, they come out and they're like, oh, hey, this is useful for depression. I'm like, well, cool, but we already were told that. And so we're already seeing this kind of like big corporations coming out and trying to patent it. Um, Compass was also trying to patent certain aspects of the therapy, like what kind of music and lighting you could use or things like that. And so um, it's just really interesting to try and patent those kind of things. And of course, that's just based on market capitalism and wanting to have a competitive edge. And so I think that that's actually part of the travesty of, of, of popularizing some of these things. Um, first, you know, it's these are not magic cures. They um, can really destabilize people. I've definitely worked with people, even with ketamine-assisted therapy, that it was more destabilizing in doing that work. 
Uh, I had one woman, uh, she came in and uh, for the two hours that we were in our session, she sat with this deep grief. I mean, she was exposed to grief of losing pets, losing family and, and people in her life. And it was painful for me to watch as a therapist. And I, I couldn't do anything for her. That's her grief. And so she was just there and exposed to this. And it was actually a few weeks of working together and doing integration afterward that she then kind of realized she was like, oh, and I think it was important to sit with this grief because instead of, you know, when her grandfather passed or her pet passed, instead of identifying that grief, she actually just went back to work. Right. She went back and just like produce, produce, produce and, and make money and plan for retirement and all of these things instead of getting to sit with that grief. But for those few weeks, it was really hard. And I uh, I felt a, a, a grand sense of powerlessness to do anything except for to be with her where she was at. And so I'm thankful that it did come around and she did come to these realizations and was was a lot better afterward. But during that time, yeah, it, it was, um, yeah, painful. Right. So it's it's almost like we we open ourselves to whatever needs to be seen or healed or integrated, whether we do that through talk therapy or this kind of work, there are going to, there are bound to be these moments where we go, uh-oh, I opened the can of worms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was I thinking? Mm-hmm. And yet it seems like there's such power in this and such possibility in this for people to have an experience that takes them out of kind of their regular shell of humanity, whatever, whatever you would call this and into this different kind of space. Do you, how, how do you see this connected to um, like somehow to me, it's like our society at this point got very secular for many people, not for everyone, but somehow in that secular uh, humanistic kind of rational world, we lost touch of the spirit and the power of the religious experience. So I wonder if we're trying to come back to that somehow, like we're trying to right the ship, you know? Yeah. And I'm actually, you know, um, that's one of the things that I really do get excited about with ketamine is in some way that medical science behind it. And I believe medical science is also uh, looking to, you know, F the ineffable, right? We're trying to make sense of the unseen, of the unknown, and find things that, that, that help us discover that more. And I do believe that the discovery of ketamine or LSD or the synthesis of MDMA, these are modern chemicals, which our ancestors were not exposed to. And I think that our ancestors weren't exposed to because they didn't have the same grievances. They didn't have the same problems, right? And so um, it's kind of like, We've, we've made better tools to cut through the modern confusion that we experience. And so it's wild because in talk therapy, um, I can work with someone, uh, but when they show up in my office, their nervous system can respond to that just like any other stress, right? And so it can shut down, they can dissociate, they can protect themselves um, from going to some of these depths. And so that's why talk therapy may take years to uncover some of these things or get to the grieving or loss um, that causes anxiety. And so what's wild is, you know, we can step into the office and take a lower dose of an anesthetic that anesthetizes the nervous system. And so then you don't have the typical nervous system response. And so then you're kind of in the deep end of the pool, right? And so then it just kind of exposes us uh, to to all of the deeper layers of unconsciousness and, and you know these things that we we might explore so um yeah i think that that's why in our modern time it, they they have been found useful 
um, for their ability to connect us to each other, right? Like um, competition and market capitalism kind of has forced us to separate out and try and specialize to get an angle on that market to make more money, right? But that doesn't necessarily uh, bring us closer in communities. And um, that's been to our detriment, right? Because, uh, uh, you know, in my, in my worldview, communities hold knowledge, not just individuals. And so our ability to meet people in community and talk about things is actually paramount to our ability to make meaningful and lasting change. And so in some ways using psychedelics and therapy, you're kind of a fast track to that, um, but it's also a fast track to uncovering sorrow and, and some of these terrible things that people have too. Right, right. So kind of the whole the whole picture, the whole possibility. Well, I just appreciate this so much, Rob. Um, you can find out more about um, some of the things Rob's been discussing at psychedelicsupport.com and also at Rob's website, which is called enduringlovetherapy.com. What, what, any final words, Rob? Um, yeah, talk to your doctor. Ask your doctor good questions about psychedelics, right? Like this helps normalize the conversation and your, your doctor, if they're doing their job, should be able to tell you whether you're healthy enough or not for any altered state experience, whether it's an SSRI and an antidepressant or psilocybin or LSD. And so um, in talking to our doctors and talking to our politicians, uh, it helps normalize this conversation. That's the edge of advocacy uh, that we can engage and talking about it with our friends, right? If you have gone through these assisted therapies, let people know, don't keep it in the closet and don't, don't hide it away at home. Um, even if it was just uh, a really scary LSD experience when you were a teenager, talk about it. It's okay, right? Like humans use drugs and medicines. And so helping normalize that conversation just helps at the advocacy level so much. I love that. Well, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where all this goes. I mean, obviously, again, there's so much interesting, interesting research about trauma. And I think trauma being one of those aspects that kind of um, haunts modern humanity. It's like, what if there is a way to open people's minds and hearts back after deep trauma through something as simple as a trip. It's, it's, it's quite a trip. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think, oh, it might've been Basil Vanderkolk. Um, the body keeps the score is a good book on trauma. Um, I'm forgetting there's another one as well, but I, I, I just remember that the quote that came out is to remember that the, the, um, the number one response to trauma that humans have is resiliency we're actually really resilient and um so that's the number one response to trauma and so that folks that don't and they actually experience things like ptsd having the usefulness of psychedelics or other you know treatments like this just help them return to that sense of resiliency that's gorgeous what a great place to stop thanks so much rob i really appreciate your time and your insights and um, all that you bring to the conversation, because I think you've got both personal experience and professional experience and kind of that inner and outer wisdom. I love the anthropology PhD. Thanks. <laughs> it's great. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Best Life, Best Death podcast, and I'm Diane Hullett. You can find out more about the work I do at bestlifebestdeath.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.